I really needed a baseball cap. Let me explain why. I have two brothers who live here in Yerushalayim, and one of them gave me a very special present, a baseball cap, with the words Chief Rabbi embroidered on it. Now, since I only wear a baseball cap when I don't want to be recognized, <laughs> it wasn't terribly useful, but I... I found a use for it. I took it to shul this Purim, and uh, I was going to wear it as my, my Purim dress, but we had unusually a visitor, two visitors, um, uh, Senator Joe Lieberman and his wife, what's his wife, Hadassah, Hadassah, who happened to be with us for Purim. So I said to Joe, listen, you know, Hashem should make you president of the United States, but if for any reason you don't get there, please wear this cap and you will have what I hope is not much less of an honor. And so if you uh, go on next Purim to young Israel, Georgetown, Washington, you will see that baseball cap, but I prefer this baseball cap. I prefer this baseball cap for two reasons. Number one, it comes from a yeshiva university. Let me tell you, there are many yeshivas in the world, all of them wonderful. There are many universities in the world, all of them wonderful. But there are only two institutions that combine them both. One here in Israel, Baralan University, and one in Chutzlaretz, Yeshiva University. And these are my two favorite institutions in the whole world. Because without, without sacrificing, God forbid, one syllable of Torah and our commitment to Talmud Torah, they also train us, each one of us, for leadership positions in the outside world. And that means each one of us, if you go to Baralan, if you go to Yeshiva University, you know what it is to understand that each one of us is an ambassador for HaKadosh Baruch Hu and for the Jewish people and for Torah. And may you be very great ambassadors for them all. And the other reason I like it is because I was mentioning last night why this is the single most important Jewish work. In a universe 13 and a half billion light years across, with 100 billion galaxies, each of more than 100 billion stars, with this one planet on which there exist 3 million life forms, we are still the only creatures in the known universe capable of asking the question, why? And one day, maybe you'll learn, maybe it's Biddlesman anyway, but in case you should learn philosophy, you know, that 
Bavonotai Arabim, I used to learn it, I teach it now. Um, there was a great philosopher in Athens called Socrates. The citizens of Athens sentenced Socrates to death because he taught the young of Athens to ask questions. But for us, the highest thing is to be taught to ask questions and not to let go until we have found an answer. And let me tell you some of the questions that we ask. You can spend a lifetime searching for the answer, but you must never let go until you find the answer. You must never, ever stop learning for as long as you breathe. And therefore, since I was asked to say just a few words on leadership, is that right? I want to share with you a moment in Jewish history that changed the world. But it's a moment that sometime or other this year or next year, you will understand. Can anyone tell me what is the first question Moshe Rabbeinu asked of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Yeah. The second question, the second question Moshe Rabbeinu asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, who are you? But the first question Moshe Rabbeinu asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, Mi Anochi. Mi Anochi. Now, the Pashtus, at the simplest level, the meaning of that question is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I am unworthy of this great task. And if you ask, tell yourself you're unworthy to be a leader of the Jewish people, that's a pretty good sign that you should be a leader of the Jewish people. However, at another level altogether, those two words, mi anochi, represent the great crisis of identity in Moshe Rabbeinu's life. Who was Moshe Rabbeinu? He was a young man who had been adopted by an Egyptian princess, brought up in Pharaoh's palace. His name was an Egyptian name, the name given to him by the daughter of Pharaoh. He looked like an Egyptian. He spoke like an Egyptian. He dressed like an Egyptian. When he ran away eventually to Midian and he saved the Benot Yisrael, Yitro, they said to their father, Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu, an Egyptian saved us. That was on the one hand. A prince of Egypt. Umitzad Shaini. He was a member of a people known to the Egyptians as the Ivrim, the Abiru, outsiders, who were slaves, who were the lowest of the low, and who didn't like leaders very much. If you ever choose to be a leader and you go through some difficult moments, Never forget that the first word said to Moshe Rabbeinu by a Jew, Who appointed you as leader over us? 
Moshe Rabbeinu hadn't even thought of becoming a leader of the Jewish people, and already they were complaining about his leadership. You should know that continues to this day. It's one of the pleasures and privileges of leadership. Everyone will criticize you so you will know for a fact that you're doing it lishma for its own sake because you wouldn't do it for any other's sake. Now go figure. What kind of a life should Moshe Rabbeinu lead? Put yourself in his position. Me anochi. Am I an Egyptian or am I a Jew? On the one hand, a life of luxury and ease in Pharaoh's palace. One of the Gulf states, a fleet of gold-plated Mercedes. Palaces everywhere. Summer home in the south of France, a chalet on one of the Swiss mountains. A life of ease, power, and wealth. Amit Sacheni, to identify with a nation of slaves who had no power, no prestige, nothing. Me Onochi, who am I? Am I going to choose the easy way of power and success or am I going to choose the difficult, difficult way of leading a people to freedom? Which way would we choose? Me One way or another, you are going to ask this year, next year, in the next few years, me Who am I really? What life should I lead? And why did Moshe Rabbeinu choose the way he chose? The Torah tells us this in some very simple words. Vayigdal Moshe, vayetzei elachav, vayabasivlotam. Moshe Rabbeinu grew up and he went out to his brothers and he saw their suffering. Let me tell you this. If you have a Yiddish and a Shoma at all, if you see your people suffering, you cannot walk away. No matter what the temptations are in terms of wealth and power and ease, if you really know that these are my brothers and sisters and you see them suffering, you can't walk away. And that is the moment when Vayid al-Moshe, Moses suddenly grew up. He realized that the pursuit of all the Gashmi pleasures of this world are in the end a state of lifelong immaturity. Real life comes when you know your people are suffering and you know that you have to do something, to be with them. And then come the following words, which really distinguish a leader from any other kind of person. He looked this way and that, and he saw there was no one there. Was there really no one there when the Egyptian taskmaster was hitting a Jew? This place was a building site. There were thousands of people. The next day, what he had done was generally known. So was there no one there? The words mean very simply. He looked around and he saw there is no one prepared to be a mensch. Nobody willing to get up and do something about it. When no one else is willing to to act, you know that you must. However unworthy you feel, a Moshe Rabbeinu is anav ma'od mikol adam, ashal p'nei adama, the most humble of men, but nonetheless he knew 
that even though I feel myself unworthy, if something bad is happening to my people and no one else is prepared to act, I must. That is, I must tell you, Rabbi, while you've been a, you've been a congregational rav, I was a congregational rav, for my sins or for theirs, I'm not sure which. And my first shove is this true story. Somebody said to me, Rabbi Sachs, you're a rabbi, Hasidim have rabbis. Could you explain to me the difference between a rabbi and a rabbi? And I said, that's very easy. A rabbi gets up and speaks in front of a thousand people, a thousand Hasidim, and every one of them knows the rabbi is talking to me. A rabbi gets him up in front of 200 people and he speaks and everyone knows he's talking about the person next to me. <laughs> when Hashem speaks to us, he speaks to us as a rabbi, not as a rabbi. He means me. And Moshe Rabbeinu, she saw no one else was prepared to leave, suddenly realized God was calling him. And that is why he became the leader he was. Hebra, I want you to know, the Jewish people is suffering. It is suffering in obvious ways. The attacks on Israel, the attacks on Israel's legitimacy, the rising anti-Semitism, which sadly is quite often to be found on campuses, but in a much deeper way. Kids going to university and then losing, losing their Yiddishkeit. For the last 20 years, in almost every place in Chutzlaretz, one in every two young Jews is deciding not to marry another Jew, build a Jewish home, have a Jewish child, continue the Jewish story. We are losing half of our people. And that loss begins Davka on campus. The first time for many students that they leave home, they're suddenly surrounded and exposed to every kind of idea good, bad, indifferent, subversive, skeptical, cynical, with every kind of lifestyle, and we lose half of our Jews. Even in Hillel houses on campus throughout America, only a small proportion of Jewish students at any university even goes to Hillel. Friends, we are losing our people. You are losing your contemporaries. And our Kaddish Baruch is crying out to you, lead. And that is my first word to you. My second is this. Never believe you can't make a difference. And for this, I want to share with you an extraordinary four words in Chumash. We'll read them shortly. In, in a few weeks in Pashas Vayeshev. Listen very carefully. Here it is. You know this story. Yosef and his brothers. His father loves Yosef. He bends the kunim For all sorts of reasons, he, was, he made a favorite out of Yosef. He gave him katonet pasim, all the rest of it. And the brothers were jealous and they hated him. 
And one day when Yosef was a teenager, 17, and father sends him out to see how they're doing, it's a long way away, they see him from afar and they plan to kill him. And one person, one of the brothers knows this mustn't happen. The name of the brother was Reuven. And it says these words, listen very carefully. Vayishma Reuven, vayatsilehu miyadam. Reuven heard the plot of the brothers, Reuven Argehu, let's kill him. Reuven heard and he saved Joseph from it. Now those words cannot be understood literally. Because Reuven tried to save Joseph, but he failed. You remember what happened. They wanted to kill Yosef. He said to them as a stratagem, just to put them off for a while, to buy time, he said, let's not kill him. Let's put him in the pit and leave him to die. So at least it will be passive. It won't be active. And he was doing this because he wanted Yosef to have a little safety time. And then when the brothers were elsewhere, their attention was diverted. Reuven planned to go to the pit and lift him up and rescue him. And when that moment came and Reuven went to the pit, the pit was empty. And Reuven realized that the plan had failed and he tore his garments and he wept. Reuven tried to save Yosef, but he didn't actually save Yosef. So the words, Vayishma Reuven v'yatsileum yadam are an unusual case of the principle of Chazal that that sometimes if you intend to do a good deed, it is as if you had done the good deed. However, I want you to listen very carefully to the way Chazal treated this phrase. The Midrash says, Midrash Ruth, Ruth Rabbah, Ilu haya yodea reuven. Shakarish barhu machtivalav. Vayishma reuven. Vyatsileum yadam hayamolaho al tevo moliho itzalavit. If reuven had only known, if he had only been able to realize that Hashem would write about him in the Torah, reuven heard and saved him from their hands, he would have bodily picked up Yosef then and there, saved him physically, and taken him straight back to safety to his father. What's the text mean? Reuven needed some external reward, needed some testimony to posterity that he was a great guy. No. The text means this. Hebra, please tell me what would have happened had Reuven done just that, rescued Joseph physically and taken him back in safety to Yaakov, what would have happened? Yosef would not have been sold into slavery. The brothers wouldn't have had that whole business with the buying corn. The Bnei Yisrael wouldn't have gone into Egypt. They wouldn't have needed Yitziad Mitzrayim. There wouldn't have been Pesach. You would have been spared all that pace of cleaning. 
The whole course of Jewish history would have changed. The whole history of the world would have been different. And there's Ruvain in the middle of this thinking to himself, listen, who am I? I'm not that important. My father always preferred Yosef, even though I'm the firstborn. I don't know. I kind of think it would be nice to save my brother. It's wrong to kill somebody. I'm not sure. And the result was he was half-hearted about it. He put the moment off. Never put off a mitzvah. But he put it off. He delayed. And because of that, a whole sequence of events happened. That Yosef, that Reuven, that nobody could have foreseen. If only Reuven had been able to read the book. To read the story. Then he'd be able to work out that that moment, which was not so obviously a turning point in history, that moment was the moment you could have made a whole difference. But he didn't know. How did he know? He couldn't read the book. He's in the middle of it in real life. If only he had been able to read the book, he would have instantly realized the whole Jewish people the whole Jewish future at that moment depended on Reuven, but he didn't realize this. Hebron. None of us ever know what a difference we make in other people's lives. Somebody will come up to me out of the blue and say, Rabbi, you don't know this, but you gave a sermon 20 years ago. You remember what you said? Do I remember? I only give sermons. I don't listen to them. That sermon persuaded me that I had a place in Yiddishkeit after all, and I want you to... One act of kindness. You should not know such things. My father, Oliver Shalom, sold schmutters in Commercial Road in London, which is like the Lower East Side. Yeah, he was a poshidi, the simple Jew. When he was nifta, Achman and Itzland, 11 years ago, and anyone who ever sat shivered low laning shouldn't know such things, discover this. People I never knew came to the, to the shiva to tell me, you know what your dad did for me 60 years ago? 60 years, and they never forgot it. And when I heard these stories one after another, I, I wept. I wept. I said to myself, Rabbanu Shalom, why did you wait for 60 years before saying thank you? Why did you wait until he's no longer here to hear the impact he made on your life? That's life. We never get to read the book of our life. We never know what impact we make on others. If only we could read. If only we knew the impact we made on other people, we would never hesitate or pause. We would get up and we would leave. But we never know that. Akarish Baruch Hu never lets us know in advance what is going to flow from our actions. Because Yaakov Legale says, Akates, 
Yaakov wanted another future. Hashem took the Shechina away. God does not want us to know the future. That is not a moral challenge if we know exactly what's going to come. The whole of life is the willingness to take a risk for the sake of HaGadosh Baruch Hu, for the sake of our people, and for the sake of Torah Yisrael and Emunah Yisrael. And you have to take a risk. And you think to yourself, who am I? Me or no? I'm going to make a difference. That's what Reuben thought. And yet, his failure to act had ripples and consequences that we remember to this day. And forget the opposite. One good deed can have an impact on a life in a way you cannot guess. And it may take years. And you may never hear about it. But we make a difference. Every one of us. And that's why we must never hesitate. We must leave. There was a, an unusual man, no longer alive, unfortunately, in British Jewry, he lived in a city in Bristol, called Bristol. His name was Dr. David Baum. I knew him a little. He was the head of the Royal Society of Pediatricians. He was a pediatrician, one of the world's greatest. He made a number of medical discoveries or inventions that had a significant part to play in reducing rates of infant mortality. And then being a yid, a, you know, from a yid who learned tarot, davened from the Omer, he realized it's not enough to make a difference to childcare in Britain. And so he went out successively to Ethiopia and to Thailand and revolutionized child medical care there. He was a religious Zionist. Although he lived in Bristol, he gave a tzavah uh, that he should be buried here in Israel in Rosh Pinah, which he was. One of the unusual things he did was that he built a state-of-the-art child care medical facility for the Palestinians in Gaza. He said, that is the kind of Zionist I am. I want the very best for Jewish children. And I want those who live next to us to have the very best, even though they are not Jewish. David Baum was the president. He created the Royal Society of Pediatricians. He was held in such admiration. In Britain, I went to the University of Bristol for his memorial service. There were 1,000 non-Jews there, and every one of them spoke in the highest terms. And David was really, you know, he, he, had, uh, uh, he had the uh, poster made for the Royal College of Pediatricians, done by his son, who was an artist in Tzfat. What is the phrase from Psalm 126? Uh, something, I, I, I'm not, we said on Shabbos afternoon, that pasuk in Hebrew and English became the logo of the Royal Society of Pediatricians. And David Baum, I once did a television program, we were able to show a video of David telling the story, used to tell a story. May, many of you may have heard it. It's a famous story. But he lived his life by this story. It's called the starfish story. I'm sure you know it, but I'll remind you. 
An old man is one day walking along a beach on a sunny day, and he sees a young man surrounded by starfish that have been stranded by the retreating tide, and the young man is picking them up one by one and throwing them back into the sea. And the old man says to the young man, what are you doing? He says, well, you can see if they're left out in the sun on this boiling hot day, they'll die, so I'm throwing them back. And the old man says, but that's crazy. You can't make a difference. There are hundreds of them, and you won't be able to throw them all back. And if you do, then there's the next beach and the next beach where there are hundreds more. You can't make a difference. And the young man looks at the starfish in his hand, and he says to this one, I'm making a difference, and throws it into the sea. David Baum told that story wherever he went. You bring Geula, one day at a time, one act at a time, one life at a time. So never doubt that you can change the world. You can. One act at a time, one day at a time. That changes the world. So I hope I have given you a an indication of what it is to become leaders. You really are leaders, though you don't know it. You are the people who will build Jewish life in the next generation. You are the people who either will or won't bring back Jews who we're losing, raise generation of Jews who are knowledgeable and proud and committed. You will make a difference. But now, and with this I end, I want to be very specific. Friends, you have doubtless been following the harrowing and deeply distressing events in Mumbai, doubtless still unfolding. And our prayers are with the hostages in Chabad House and with the hostages everywhere. And yesterday already I sent off my deep condolences to the Indian government and to the British Indian community and, and all, all, every, all the shuls are being mispalel for the hostages. But I want to tell you what this battle is about and this is the big battle of the 21st century. It will dominate this century. There were in history some anti-Semites. I have a personal favorite anti-Semite. His name was Nietzsche. You've heard of Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, most anti-Semites are extremely boring. I like Nietzsche because he was interesting. He's an unconventional anti-Semite. In fact, he had a very great friend, the musical composer Richard Wagner. And he actually broke with Wagner because he thought... Wagner was too much of an anti-Semite. You know, he did everything with Derech HaEl But Nietzsche, while he was an anti-Semite, was not Mavatl Yidin or Yadis. He was an anti-Semite not because he looked down on Jews. On the contrary, he called Jews the most remarkable nation of world history. He was an anti-Semite because he genuinely opposed what we stand for. And he thought we were wonderful, worthy opponents. What did he oppose? He called Judaism the slave revolt in morals. He thought that Judaism is the religion of a nation of slaves who because they were slaves, 
invented a new kind of morality based on kindness and compassion and reaching out the helping hand, tzedakah, chesed, all these things, all of which Nietzsche thought were terrible. He thought life, nature is the rule of the strong over the weak, the powerful over the powerless. And he thought Jews were crazy because they turned that world upside down. And he said, he wrote in a book he published very shortly before Nietzsche went mad. He spent the last 11 years insane in an asylum. Just before he went mad, the last full book he published, he says Jews are the most remarkable nation in the history of the world because faced between living and not living, being and not being, Jews chose life. At every stage, whatever the price. And he thought that was terrible because, you know, in Nietzsche's value system, the hero, the military hero, the, is willing to, is made great by dying a, do, a noble death. And I believe that Nietzsche was the most perceptive philosopher of modern times, and he called the name of his philosophy the will to power. And I actually think Nietzsche was right. The big choice in human existence is, was, and will be either Nietzsche or Judaism. Either the will to power or the will to life. Either history is the triumph of the strong over the weak, the powerful over the powerless, or history is that a nation is great not by its power, but how it cares for the powerless, how it responds to the weak, how it cares for the vulnerable. It's either the will to life or the will to power. It is either the triumph of the strong or that faith which led Thomas Jefferson in the summer of 1776 to write those words that you Americans know better than me. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are in doubt by their creator with certain inalienable rights among them, etc., etc. No truths were ever less self-evident. All men created equal. You would have asked Plato, we would have thought you're Meshuggah, Aristotle, you're man. Plato thought there were people of gold, of silver, of bronze. Aristotle thought there were people born to rule and other people born to be ruled. Nobody believed all men are created equal except those who believed in Baratius chapter 1 verse 27 that every human being is made in the image of justice of God. That is the great choice. It has been the choice throughout history. It is the choice now. The will to power against the will to life. In the 20th century, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. In the 21st century, people whose name I don't need to spell out, who seek world domination and are willing to, in the pursuit of that, to kill women, children, the innocent, the passers-by, who are willing to win their path to power 
through innocent blood. The words of Moshe Rabbeinu towards the end of his life are as relevant and powerful today as they ever were in all of history. See, I set before you et the blessing and the curse, life and death, therefore choose life that you and your children may live. And there are three countries above all others that exemplify that, Israel and the two nations that were built on Tanakh, namely Britain and the United States, who were, who were formed Britain in the 17th century and the United States from the Mayflower Compact in 1620 and John Winthrop's Drasha from Pasha's Nitzavim aboard the Arabella in 1630 all the way through to the next inaugural address by Barack Obama, which whatever it includes will include some reference to God because every inaugural address since Washington's first in 1789 to George W. Bush's second in 2005 contained reference to God, the only exception being Washington's second, which took three minutes and basically said, we've got work to do, let's get on with it. Every one of them, every one of them mentions God, most of them mention Ashkoch Pradis, Providence, some of them mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Jefferson second in 1803, all the way to Bill Clint, William Jefferson Clinton in his second inaugural saying, we have come to the promised land, let us make it a new land of promise. I, forgive me if I get those words wrong, but that was his second inaugural. And you will know, friends, the Britain-America, two biblical societies, Cromwell, Hobbes, Locke, all of these people who created modern Britain in the 17th century, all of them were basing themselves not on Plato's Republic or on Aristotle's Podolics, but on Tanakh, which Hobbes quotes 650 plus times in the Leviathan, which John Locke quotes throughout his letters on toleration. Britain, America were the two societies built on Tanakh, and that is why there have been the great free societies in modern history. Israel, Britain, and America, still, they were the ones singled out for attack by the terrorists in Mumbai, and they are the ones who believe in choosing life. Friends, the Jewish message, though it is very ancient, is unbelievably young, fresh, and relevant. I teach Torah, and I write it in books that are published for non-Jews and serialized in the national, Jewish, in the national non-Jewish press because non-Jews, you know, there are not many Jews in Britain, about half a percent of the population. Non-Jews understand the Torah is the source of our Western values of freedom, the sanctity of life, and the non-negotiable dignity of the human individual. And that is the great choice of the 21st century. So don't think that being a Jew matters only to you. It matters, A, to your fellow Jew, as I've explained, and B, to the world at large. We were the carriers of this message. Kedusha Dachayim, the will to life. Otherwise, there's the will to power, which is unfortunately what leads people to be cruel in the name of the God of compassion and make war in the name of the God of peace. Friends, Go out there and lead. And when you ask yourself the question, Mianofi, who am I? Don't say, I am unworthy of leading the Jewish people. That is what Hashem created you for. It's why he brought you for this year of study in Israel. May the years of study 
in Israel multiply without getting involved in any family disputes. <laughs> May all of you go to Yeshiva University. May all of you flourish. May all of you lead. And may each of you bring blessings to the Jewish people and pray to Hashem. Amen. Chief Rabbi, thank you uh, very much. I have one other thing to, uh, to give you this morning. Uh, another special gift uh, from Yeshiva University, something that you uh, definitely have um, provided for us this morning. It's a little crystal with the uh, Yeshiva University logo, and it says, bringing wisdom to life. I'd like to... Before we... Um... Life is a photo object. <laughs> uh, before um, I ask you to offer some of your... Smart. Thank you. Before I give you the opportunity to ask the Chief Rabbi a few questions, there's just uh, one other thing that I'd like to share with you this morning. There are many powerful moments. Each of us had our own individual powerful moment uh, listening to... Uh, the Chief Rabbi, and to Rabbi Weil. But there is one moment that I would like to just share with you. And that was when the Chief Rabbi was describing each of you and your faces and your potential and the opportunity. I had the schus, which I don't have that often, to be sitting close to Rav Shechter. And he was visibly moved. And I hate to intrude on a personal moment. But to share with you our Rosh Hashiva's passion for your potential to become B'nai Torah, B'nos Torah. This is the future of the Jewish people sitting in this room. I'd like to give each of you the opportunity, not all of you because we don't have time, we'll be here until next Rosh Chodesh, but to ask any questions that you might have to the Chief Rabbi, to Rabbi Weil, to have the opportunity to come over and greet Rav Shechter. I'll ask, I think there was a cordless mic, if any of you have any questions. This is a great opportunity. If you don't, yes, a question. Hi, um, the Chief Rabbi was t telling us about how we're all created equal in uh, God's image and the how Torah kind of, um, how, how Torah teaches us that we're all made equal and we should all treat each other equally. But um, I'd like to know how you deal with the fact that there are other places in the Torah which suggest the opposite. Like, for instance, the fact that when you have a ger in your land, you're not allowed to um, make him an official or other things like that. Thank you. I think it's, the question was, since we hold that all men are equal, equal in dignity as the image of Hashem, how do we square that with other features? Like, for example, the fact that uh, you don't appoint a year as a melech be Israel as a king in Israel. First of all, 
the answer to that question was given by Rabbi Akiva when he said, Chaviv Adam Shenivrav B'Tzalem, Chaviv in Yisrael Shenikrim Bonim Lamokam. Everyone is equally in the image of God and therefore equally endowed with human rights and human dignity. At the same time, Am Yisrael have had a very special relationship of closeness with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, And that is why we have the very special situation of being HaKadosh Baruch Hu's close family, B'ni B'chari Yisrael, my child, my firstborn Israel. And you will see that closeness if you compare Lahavdil Elef Havdolas, Tanakh, with any other liter religious literature in the world. I mentioned last night that in Tanakh, Avram Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, Yirmiyahu, the Nevi'im, they conversed with HaKadosh Baruch. There was a dialogue between God and the heroes of Israel. And in this week's Sedra, Rivka, Vatelech Lidrosh et Hashem, Rivka speaks to Hashem and Hashem answers her. Nowhere in either the New Testament or the Quran is there a conversation between God and human beings? None. And all the other religions in the world don't even come into consideration because they are not religions of revelation, religions in which God speaks. So therefore, objectively, there is a qualitative difference between Judaism as a faith and other faiths. We just came back a couple of weeks ago from Dominic in the Altneuschule in Prague, the oldest extant shul in Europe. And Lahavdil Elef Havdolas, you'll see them from the outside, you don't go inside, please, uh, the cathedrals of Europe. You know, have you been to the shuls in Tzfat? What are they like? The Ari Shul, the Rav Yosef Karim, they're tiny. You look at the cathedrals of Europe, they're vast. I say in a cathedral, people sense the vastness of God and the smallness of mankind. In a shul, you feel the closeness of God and the greatness of mankind. So Jews have a special relationship with Hashem, but that has absolutely nothing to do with equal dignity as citizens in the image and likeness of God. And if you doubt that that applies to a ger, then please read and commit to memory Rambam's famous Igeret L'Ovadya Hager, his famous letter to Ovadya, the uh, convert. It's one of the most beautiful letters in Jewish literature. And you will see, and you will especially see if you study it, not just on the surface, but you look how the Rambam reads his Makorot. You will see the total love that the Rambam has and he tells us Hashem has for a gear as well as for a uh, as well as for a born Jew. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there's a question. Viva oh. So you're you're giving the microphone. Okay, so uh. Okay. Um, I'd first like to thank you for the wonderful speech. I personally was quite touched by it. Um, secondly sorry I can't hear you. I, I just wanted to thank you for the speech. Oh, that you gave. <laughs> getting uh, me to speak is easy. Getting me to shut up is quite difficult. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and my question was that you said that um, as leaders that we, we would have two aims to help uh, the Jewish people as well as uh, the world at large. I was wondering if you felt that there was any priority over one or the other by which one we should follow. Uh, we, we must help when the Jewish people is in trouble. Our first uh, loyalty and commitment of time must go to Jews in need. Uh, but I think we should feel ourselves able, if we can, to dedicate uh, a misa, a tenth of our time, to the wider community of people in need under what is known as Darchei Shalom, the ways of peace, which you will understand if you learn the uh, Gemara in Gitin and the Tosefta, where all the laws are set out. So... Um, Friends, the Jewish people right now needs you. It really does. If we, everything were perfect, I'd say go out to Africa and cure disease and finish poverty. Friends, they're Jews doing that already. They're wonderful Jews, the joint, uh, wonderful people, world Jewish relief. They're doing that. The task of leadership I am calling you to perform is to do with your fellow Jewish students that you will meet on campus or that you will come across in your life, bring them close, because that is something only you can do. Lakach Natsarta. For that, Hashem put you in this place, in this time. So please, at this moment, concentrate on the Jews you know who are drifting away and bringing them close. Um, you had you said before that one out of two Jews are having problems with what, intermarriage and, and assimilation, and you, you said that the root of that was probably secular universities. And I wanted to know if you could trace that farther back, probably to home and the values that, like the family and your home community, is instilling within each person. And because on the other hand, there are a lot of people who are going to universities, and I have a lot of friends who are going who become even more religious because they have more opportunities there. And I think that's more of a reflection on their home and values that um, they were brought up with. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely so. The single most powerful effect. The question was, could it be having been brought up in non-observant homes? Was that the question? Did I hear it correctly? Yeah? You... Not that they're bringing up in unobservant homes, like even religious people who are going to universities and at university um, become like assimilated or, or lose their, the, the bubble maybe that they were in before that they left. And yeah. There. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, question, the question is, is it that the fact that you're cut adrift from home and the friends you grew up with that might as it were, loosen your attachment to Judaism and leave you, lead you to leave. That is undoubtedly the case. And so, you know, I, I please urge every one of you, I'm sure you all will, but please, whichever university you go to, go to one with a critical mass of committed Jews because it's not good to be alone. You can't preserve your Judaism in a university with very few Jews or with a very weak Jewish life. 